metaphor is extremely important to understanding our species, how we think, how we relate to each other, how we talk about the world, how we conceive the world. Uh, and Lakoff and Johnson are owed an incredible debt by everybody for their pioneering breakthrough work on showing us examples. But ultimately, metaphor can only be understood as a small part of the theory of semiotics and human culture that underwrites all metaphors. Welcome to the story of language, an original podcast series about language, linguistics, cognition, and culture. My name is Christian Saunders, and I am an English teacher. And throughout this series, I will be in discussion with Dan Everett, linguist, anthropologist, philosopher, and author. In this episode, we talk about the fundamental role of metaphor in language, from its involvement in the creation and evolution of language, to its role in the modern understanding of language through the work of Lakoff and Johnson and the study of semiotics. If you would like to contact us, you can find us on Twitter at Story of Language, or you can send us an email at storyoflanguage at gmail.com. This is episode seven of The Story of Language. Have you sort of suffered any ill side effects from from all of your years in the jungle? You know, and is there any like long term effect on your health? Um, I don't know. I I don't um, I don't think so. But it's hard to say. You know, you see people recover from injuries and all sorts of things, and then as they get older, these things come back to haunt them because the body really didn't get over it, um, and. Uh, but, you know, I don't know. Um, the, the main thing, I guess, is to try to keep um, as active as possible as, as you age. Um, but um, I'm certainly, I have plenty to keep me busy uh, intellectually. So that's, that's a good thing. I, I, don't know, I don't know if you agree, but I, I, say, I say to my wife all the time that, that the worst thing that people can do is retire because... Um, generally, you know, a lot of people, they've, they've had a kind of nine to five job their whole life and then they retire and then suddenly they kind of lose the, the reason to get out of bed in the morning and then that's it, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's an amazing, um, that's an amazing thing. I, I never have felt the desire to retire at 68. I'll be 69 in July. Um, one of the reasons I left the UK is because, you know, there, you see all these lawsuits right now going on between Oxford and some of its its very senior people because they're getting over 67 and Oxford's firing them. They call it retirement, but it's just firing people based on their age. Um, I will guarantee you that there's no junior assistant professor, even if they're twice as smart as me, who currently knows as much as me. And there's, I'm at the peak of my abilities. If I were getting terrible teaching evaluations and I weren't doing research, then I think that universities have to be able to get rid of people like that. But if you're active and you're continuing to build systematically on the uh, cognitive resources you've developed over a lifetime, 
it's utterly ridiculous to force people to retire. And in my way of thinking, it doesn't even make sense for people to retire to to begin with. Well, well, speaking of sort of um, age and 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 time, that that sort of leads me into into what we're going to talk about today in in episode seven, which is about metaphor. And I wanted to just start by by asking a question. So some some estimates of the amount of metaphor in everyday language put it as low as like three or four percent. Like when they look at a big corpora of language and they look at how many kind of phrases are based on metaphors, it's about five percent. But then there are other people like, for example, Lakoff in this in this amazing book, uh, Metaphors We Live By, who who would say that metaphor actually makes up almost all of language. So, you know, where do you kind of feel, which one do you feel is, is more correct? Well, I, th- I suggest that it would lean more towards, um, towards Lakoff's estimation. I've never really done, an, you know, any kind of quantitative study of how much of regular speech is, is metaphor. But, um, um, you know, that book came out, Metaphor Was We Live By, when I was doing my PhD in Brazil. And as it turns out, George Lakoff was there uh, as a visiting professor. And, and, um, and I was sharing my office at the time as tr- with John Searle. There was some big event happening in Brazil, and we had all these great people down there. And I remember... Uh, Lakoff was really pushing his book, and John Searle in class says, yeah, this book is full of a lot of examples, but I don't see any theory in it at all. Uh, and uh, I thought, gosh, I hope someday I can be that arrogant. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, to be so self-confident that I can take a major scholar, super famous guy, and say, yeah, not very good. Uh, and it turns out that uh, I do that too. But, uh, um, but but I talked to Lakoff a lot about this. And on the one hand, I do agree with Searle now after many years that I don't think there's much of a theory of what metaphor comes from. But I do think there's a huge amount of extremely important work that's come out of metaphors we live by on the applications of metaphor and looking for metaphors and looking how it it controls us. You know, a lot of the entire movement called embodied cognition comes out of Lakoff's work on metaphors we live by because we use our body to talk about our mind. Um, we use our body, you know, so like among the Pita Ha, you, you talk about the back of a house like you do here. You talk about the the top of a house, you know, the head of the house in Pita Ha. It's not the top of the house. It's the head of, well, these are metaphors. These are using the body to talk about other experiences. And we do this all the time. And, and I don't think that Lakoff is probably all that far off, Lakoff and Johnson, when they talk about metaphors. And they've done a lot of other really good work on metaphor. But uh, to me, the theory of metaphor has to come out of, um, out of something much deeper, such as uh, Persis semiotics. And I think that's really where the, the best theory of metaphor is found. But if we think about all the uses of metaphor, you know, people ask you, what does your name mean? You know, so you, your name is Christian. Uh, are you a Christian? Well, who was a Christian? You know, they, so pe- we're always looking for meaning. What's the analog- analogy? You know, we talk about American Indian names of the plains, you know, Chief uh, Rain in the Face and Red Cloud and 
all this kind of stuff. Um, what does that mean? We're looking for the meaning. Um, well, is it a metaphor? Is, is Red Cloud somebody who, when he's angry, Red Clouds appear to represent his anger? Um, or is his anger like the Red Clouds of the storm? Or is it just the fact that he was born when there were Red Clouds over his mother? Um, you know, so, but we, we want to find these deeper meanings. People are always asking me, you know, so what does my name mean? My name, Daniel, means God is my judge. Um, uh, and, and uh, you know, that's sort of a nice name. Everhart, which is the source of Everett, means hard as a wild boar. But then Ever, the Eberharts went to France and it became Everett, which just means little pig. And then it, uh, they went to, uh, they went, you know, with the French, they were happily slaughtering, you know, uh, their fellow Anglo-Saxons in, in uh, England. It's, it's a shame that your name went from, you know, strong kind of heart of a boar, which is like a wild, ferocious animal to just little pig. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. Well, there may be many people who thought that was an appropriate um, evolution, but um, but what is it? It doesn't mean I don't think of it anymore. I don't think of my name and compare myself to a pig. It's just a name now. But a lot of names do come from metaphors. You know, at some point, the origins. You know, Eberhard was a metaphor. You know, he is like a boar. So, so where do we get these these comparisons? You know what is the cognitive basis of these things? What is the linguistic or semiotic basis of metaphors? Um, and then what good are they once, once we, why do so many people have them? How I just, you know, I don't make claims like every culture has X because I haven't visited every culture. And I think that's an empirical claim, but I have never found a culture that doesn't have metaphor. I've never read of a culture that doesn't have metaphor. Well, I was, I was going to ask you actually about, uh, if, you know, the Peterham, for example, who in a lot of ways, are, you know, the most different language users that, well, that certainly that I know about, um, if, if they use metaphor in similar ways to the way we use it in English. Yeah, I mean, the, the verb to run in um, uh, Peterham is to hit the ground with a big foot. <laughs> I mean, that, <laughs> they don't just have a verb to run, it's to hit with a big foot. Um, that's metaphorical um, because nobody's foot actually grows when they're running, right? Um, it's just you're pounding, you're pounding when you're running, and so it sounds like a Bigfoot. Um, and and uh, they use like in the parts of houses, and they and and um, and they have you know they use, certainly use similes all the time. There's a there's a a word igabi which means like, and so they make similes all the time. And similes and metaphors and analogies are all variants of what Peirce called icons. Um, you know, so, so a metaphor is to language as a painting is to eyes um, for Peirce. It is, um, it is a, it's a transfer or a linking of properties we see in one thing with the properties in another thing. So if it is uh, real, realistic art like the Mona Lisa, then we, we can see the connections much more transparently. If it's abstract art or impressionistic art, the connections, but, but ultimately anybody can see anything in anything, right? So metaphors, are not limited by rule. You can, Peirce used to say that anything can be a metaphor for anything. 
It just depends on the properties the individual person wants to look at, but it also depends on the properties that are licensed by the culture. So, so the ability to see similarities, and we're always looking for metaphor. When we don't understand something right away, we're trying to analyze it metaphorically. A metaphor just means to carry over or to transfer. Um, you know, I had a paper by a graduate student many years ago, what's a metaphor? You know, but like meta and then F-O-R, like a little play on words. Oh, okay, nice. I gave him, a low, I gave him quite a low grade for that. That irritated me. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um, it, is, it is a transfer, a carrying over of, of something. And, and that's only limited by our individual and cultural uh, cognitive um, uh, foundation. I've, I've heard people tell me specific examples like, for example, the metaphor of reaching for the stars in, in kind of, you know, Anglo-Saxon culture is, is a positive thing because it's like, you know, you're really trying to be the best and, you know, right. it's like space is a metaphor for achievement. But, but in Chinese culture, the same metaphor is negative because it's a bit like you're above your station, you're, you're egotistical, right? Yeah, so, so we see the same, the, sex, the exact same property is interpreted very differently based on the culture. Peirce said that icons uh, fall into two broad categories, images and metaphors. And among images, there are diagrams. So a, a sentence diagram, like you would draw in linguistics or in English class, is in a sense an icon, I mean, it's an icon of, of that sentence. You're looking at the properties that you want to look at it. The sentence, you know, it's showing certain kinds of relationships that are important to your theory. Whereas a metaphor is an icon of uh, more abstract uh, properties um, or, or uh, less uh, direct connections. You know, I can say this branch in the, in the diagram represents this thing in the sentence. Whereas in a metaphor, you sort of have to invent these things, and then we agree that we'll do them. But if you give somebody a sentence like Chomsky's famous colorless green ideas sleep furiously, people look at that and try to interpret it. And they don't try to interpret it literally. They try to interpret it metaphorically because that's our job as speakers. You tell me a sentence, I don't understand you. I'll first try to un understand it in the context and literally uh, maybe a little bit less literally, or but if if it makes no sense at all, I'll try to understand it metaphorically. You know, uh, you know, it's it's and we see jokes on this all the time. So the uh, the famous and hilarious movie on folk folk music, A Mighty Wind. Um, you know, that that's a great metaphor. It's a mighty wind, uh, but it also is a metaphor for lots of things. You're going to mean somebody was passing gas. It can mean uh, uh, they're just a blowhard. They just talk too much. It could mean that it's a, a movement that's caused by their beautiful singing, the wind that comes out of their lungs. Um, and none of those are right or wrong, except as we try to apply, apply them to this, a determined context. I, I do actually, and I know, and I know this, this probably, maybe it makes me um, kind of an outlier, but when I, when I first read, you know, Colorless uh, Green Ideas Sleep Furiously, I kind of, I did have these some kind of visual image in my mind of what that might be like it didn't actually strike me as a sentence that was impossible it struck me more as a sentence that was more kind of maybe poetic 
rather than impossible? Yeah, I mean, um, studies of that sentence, I mean, there are actually award-winning poems written on that sentence now, which is kind of hilarious. Uh, but there, was, there have been studies by computer scientists that show that um, that's the, of, if you take all those words and you put them in the most statistically um, expected order, that's the order they'll be in. So it doesn't, you don't need syntax to explain why they'll be in that order. Uh, the, the original example was to show that syntax is distinct from semantics. So you can have a syntactically well-formed and semantically poorly formed thing. I, I also agree that semantics and syntax are quite different things. And, and, and um, I'll be talking in April at, at the University of Cambridge in the UK about these things and, and using Pina Ha. But, um, but we, we try to interpret new experiences metaphorically if we can't interpret them literally, because what is it? It's, it's, we're trying to find something we do understand as a way of, under, of, of talking about something we, we're not sure we understand. So, you know, it's like, uh, and there again, when I say like, I'm using a simile, which is a metaphor. We can't get we can't reason without it. Yeah. No, it, it's funny what you're saying about um, about how syntax and semantics are, are, are distinct, and, and they are. But I think um, after, after having to explain to students right. for so many years, like why things, you know, to second language learners, kind of why things are the way they are in English, what, what I realize is that syntax is really a lot more flexible than people realize. You know, like adjective order you know, like post-positive adjectives and, you know, even even the what we consider to be standard word order in English, there's still a lot of room for playing with that. Uh, Robert Van Balen, in his role in reference grammar, talks a lot about the flexibility of English grammar, which is, um, is pragmatically rigid, but syntactically um, fairly relaxed. Um, so you move words around, you get pragmatic effects. Uh, in English, and there's a lot of liberty uh, to do that, but um, um, metaphor is just, it, it is a way of, of, you know, so Steve Pinker distinguishes, um, it's an old distinction, actually, it's not original with him, although some people think it is, it's dead metaphors versus live metaphors, um, you know, and I first encountered metaphor when I was studying to be a Bible translator, so there's, there was a textbook which is actually quite a good book aside from the title, which is Translating the Word of God, and uh, TWAG, as we used to say. Um, and, uh, and it goes into all the, all the different kinds of um, varieties of, of non-literal speech, because obviously a translator is going to have to deal with this. And, and um, um, metaphor is is very crucial. It's found throughout the Bible. You know, I say unto you, if your faith is like the grain of mustard, uh, and you command this mountain to move into the sea, it will. Um, that's actually false. But uh, <laughs> this is one of the many silly metaphors that are used, but it's a good metaphor. You know, it gets people to think that I must not have any faith because I can't even get it to tie my shoes, much less move this damn mountain. I, I got to plow instead, you know, I got to plant my crops and everything. Um, but um, <laughs> it is, it, you know, so, but metaphor is, is throughout the Bible. You, you think of the, you know, sermons. Um, I used to preach a lot, but you, but now I don't preach. Now I give lectures. And in my lectures, 
you meet with students who they've never heard of this this stuff before so you try to use use metaphors i'm teaching a class right now which has nothing to do with linguistics it's it's on the uh, culture of wall street and it is um so we talk about derivatives you know i i'm i'm not a very good person to talk because i've never made a penny in investments that i'm aware of uh but um but derivatives, you know, this is these were responsible for the crash of 2008, um, and and everybody loves them. But um, that is not the people who lose money, but the people who put them together and sell them. They love uh, monies, you know. But they 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 explain these things by metaphors. Um, what does it mean, um, you know, to do this? Even the the concept hedge fund. That's a that's a metaphor. You know, what is a hedge? You know, it's like a little row of trees or whatever. And so it's thing to protect you from the vicissitudes of the market, which turns out to be a metaphor. It's just an abstraction of what little firms, big firms do all day. Um, Buying and selling. Yeah. So, so metaphor can be helpful, but it, it also can obscure because once we've got a metaphor, we think we've understood it. Right. Well, I mean, actually, that's something that I, I want to dive into a little bit deeper in, in a moment. But I, I wanted to ask you first, do, do, do the Peter Hahn um, use more abstract metaphors? Like, for example, you know, is, is heart a metaphor for kind of, you know, spirit and, and uh, bravery? And is it, do they use abstract metaphors like that? Yeah, they do. They say things like, um, you know, he's got a, he's got a bad head. Okay, but that doesn't mean actually literally that he has a bad head. It just means he makes bad decisions. He does bad things. Culture, he violates our cultural values. So that's definitely metaphorical. It's, they don't, you know, they don't have heart metaphors, but they have head metaphors and they have foot metaphors like we've already discussed. And they have uh, penis metaphors. These are the things they really like to, they, they love genital metaphors but uh <laughs> oh really oh. yeah yeah well i mean like like teenagers in 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 the united states oh, right? yeah well like everybody in the united states but we blame teenagers for it but uh, uh <laughs> you know i mean you know he's a dick um you know that's that's a great example of metaphor and uh, i suppose pinker would call it a dead metaphor although i don't because i don't know how many people actually visualize the male genitalia when you say this but um probably a lot do uh, so it depends on your expo you know, on your exposure to that, and a lot of um, hilarious drawings and stuff just sort of literalize metaphors. What you know, what what this would look like. So yeah, the Peter Haas use metaphor all over the place. Um, I've been accused of saying the Peter Haas don't think abstractly. Um, basically, there, there are two fundamental distinctions in philosophy between nominalists, people who believe that we only have experience with specific things and then we invent generalities and causation to connect them, uh, you know, such as uh, David Hume. Um, or we have uh, realists who are people who believe that red exists even though you can never see it outside specific red things. You know, there's this thing called redness. So to a nominalist, redness doesn't exist it's just, uh, it doesn't exist outside the mind. And uh, to, uh, to a realist, redness does exist outside the mind. Uh, Peter Haas in that sense would be nominalist. So they tend not to give names for things that, um, that would be called universals. Um, 
it, it gets a little complicated because they do have generics. But um, so, so when people think they think simplistically, nobody thinks that David Hume thinks simplistically, the great Scottish philosopher. Uh, the uh, you know, but David Hume was a nominalist. The Pitaha are Amazonian nominalists. They have a sophisticated philosophy about the world, which is at uh, radical odds with contemporary American society. But they still think abstractly. Abstractly, they, they reason about things and they use metaphors to help them reason just as we do. But but is, is that a little bit like that kind of trick, that trick question that that high school students ask each other, which is, um, what was the highest mountain in the world before they discovered Everest? <laughs> right. Even though Everest wasn't discovered, it was still the highest in the world. But so even though you don't, you may not know it exists, there's still a reality out there. Yeah, yeah, but Everest is a specific thing. Um, to say that, um, so, so do you want to say that there are, are mountains or just these individual things that shoot up be above sea level or whatever. Um, so, so realism and nominalism have an old um, debate that goes back uh, centuries. And at one time or another, one has been the victor, you know, so uh, Berkeley was, was the ultimate uh, nominalist um, and Kant uh, tried to become bridge the gap between realism and nominalism, and some people think that he was more of a nominalist. I, I just think that, uh, as as Peirce says of Kant, he really wasn't very good at logic. Uh, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's there's another one with with such arrogance, right? Amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Peirce thought that you know Bertrand Russell was a hack who didn't know any math and. <laughs> You know, anything he did know was plagiarized. Uh, <laughs> I've actually got passages here where Peirce says that. Wow. Uh, but um, that's why nobody liked Peirce. Uh, because he told everybody that. <laughs> but, but the, the Pitahans are, are extremely intelligent people. Is, is there a Nobel Prize winning winner in physics among the Pitaha? Um, that question doesn't make any sense because they don't do physics except um, as, as, so if you shoot a fish under the water, right, you don't just shoot at the fish, you shoot below the fish, you have to account for refraction. So you do have to have a theory of physics to be a good hunter, but you don't need to, to make it much more than applied physics. Um, and, and so talent, all these things are defined by culture. Talent, to say somebody's talented means they're quite good at something I value. They, they may be able to um, uh, train cockroaches. Somebody might think that's talented. Other, somebody else might think, what a waste of time. You know, it's just talent is defined culturally. Intelligence is defined culturally. So uh, somebody who sits around the Pitaha contemplating all day is going to be considered a, a drain on the society, a worthless dweeb, not an intelligent person um, like me. Uh, you know, they don't understand why I have why I don't starve to death. Um, it just doesn't make any sense. I can't do anything. I don't do anything. I just sit on my butt all day and look at papers. That's the way they describe me to everyone. Uh, in fact, uh, years ago, my son, who's, you know, at the University of Miami now, Caleb, he, um, 
was playing with some friends in Brazil and they were talking about what their dads did. And they said, what does your dad do? Because the fathers told me about this afterwards. He says, oh, he doesn't do anything. He just sits on a, in a, on a chair all day and plays with, you know, looks at paper. Well, I mean, after, after my conversations with you, I think that my, my kind of view of, of how culture affects pretty much every part of cognition, it always comes to the to the, to the forefront whenever I, you know, when people ask me a question, because, you know, I'm an Australian living in Spain. So people ask me questions about, you know, what's it like in Australia? And, and you know, the, well, for, for example, I, <laughs> I, I was watching a film recently, an American film. And, and in the film, there's the family sitting around the table and, and the son, he's, um, he's about 20 years old, right? And the mother and father are saying, listen, you're 20 years old. It's time that you get out, got out of this house and went out into the world and got a job and got a got an apartment and you know you can't stay here anymore. And when I was watching it, I looked over at my wife and I said, "This this conversation in Spain would just never happen. Like the idea of parents kicking the children out of the house when they're only 20 is totally <laughs> alien." My dad started charging me rent when I was 16. <laughs> <laughs> because you know, he said he said you're either going to pay rent or get the hell out. But he didn't. He wouldn't have kicked me out until I was 18. But yeah, I wanted my kids were all independent at 18. That's a very strong Anglo-Saxon value, I guess, to get out there and raid the Romans. But uh, <laughs> yeah, but here in Spain, like you know, um, parents are happy to have the children at home until. You know, I mean, they could study, they could be doing a doctorate until they're in their 30s, and it's no problem, you know? Right, right. You know, I, um, um, you know, that my view is, in your parents' view, is not universal anymore. Uh, but my generation, I think, holds it strong. My wife doesn't feel this way. Um, uh, my first wife certainly did. I try to overcome these feelings, but it irritates me when I see somebody who's over 20 living at home. I, I still find this irritates me a great deal. I, I asked my students, I said, how many of you are um, over 20? And they raised their hands. And I said, how many of you are supported by your parents? And they raised their hands. And I said, this is why the human animal is so unusual, because it takes at least 30 years for our offspring to reach adulthood, independent adulthood, whereas a horse gets it in a, you know, in a few days. <laughs> Oh well, I I can only imagine how how upset you'd feel meeting a meeting someone from around here who's kind of like thirty and the the mother still cooks and the mother still does the washing and you know yeah 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 um I, I just I just wanted to to read to give people an idea of of some of the things that were in um that were in this in the book by by Lakoff and Johnson so um so they talk about these. Uh, well, chapter four is about orientational metaphors. And they say, for example, that happy is up and sad is down. So I'm feeling up. That boosted my spirits. My spirits rose. You're in high spirits. Thinking about her always gives me a lift. Or the opposite, I'm feeling down. I'm depressed. He's really low these days. I fell into a depression. My spirits sank. And and then, you know, the the book is full of examples like this about how you know, like love is a journey and argument is war. And my question is, does this tell us anything about how language began? Like, because this is probably a question that a lot of people have in their minds is, you know, did it start with, um, 
just grunting or did it start with pointing or, you know, what's your, because I know that this is a, a field of great expertise of yours. Um, well, I, we didn't need many sounds. We don't need many sounds to express ourselves. Uh, the more sounds we have, the less ambiguity, but also the more things we have to remember. Um, so I don't think that the number of sounds we were able to produce when we were homo erectus would have been a limitation on language. It would have been a limitation on the physical instantiation of language, which is speech or signs. I think we communicate with our entire body, so there never would have been a time when we weren't using our whole body to communicate, our hands, our facial expressions, the sounds we make, all of these things go together. And um, we can't interpret a sentence effectively if we can't see the person speaking. Uh, um, a blind person has to make all kinds of adjustments to, to interpret without the visual cues. A deaf person has to make all kinds of adjustments to, uh, and, and so, uh, sign languages, full-blown sign languages, have a lot of this stuff built into them. You know, they have intonation and um, so they have a lot of this stuff built into them. Um, but, but I'm sure that blind people can tell you that language is not just the sounds uh, because there's all kinds of ambiguity. Um, much of it is, is clear, cleared up in intonation, but a lot of it is re relies on expressions. Um, and, and, and hand gestures and things like this. So we communicate with our bodies, um, not just with our minds or just with our mouths, but with our entire body. But metaphors almost certainly were, um, were, were important to human reasoning, but they come out of culture. So metaphors and language come from the same source, which is culture. It's once we get together and start to form values and want to communicate those values that we come up with a code for doing it. Now we need a brain big enough to do that. Uh, my dog communicates well with me and uh, I don't, I'm starting to waver on the idea that animals lack symbols at all. Uh, but human brains are able to generate new symbols very productively. And as soon as we got to that, and we had a way of physically instantiating those symbols with our bodies, especially with our mouths, um, because that's very efficient. Um, we, um, we, we began to use metaphors and language um, um, much more. But a metaphor, again, to take Peirce's idea, anything can be a metaphor of anything. So it's not the case that up has to be positive and down has to be negative. And I don't think that Lakoff and Johnson explore culture enough, because if they did, they would have found examples like reaching for the stars in Mandarin versus reaching for the stars in English. I think that, um, you know, we have to ask ourselves, is up always positive in every culture? Maybe it isn't. And if it isn't, that shows that it's not innate. Maybe it is. That also does not show that it is innate. It simply shows that there's something about I mean, we're upright. The creatures that we dislike the most are low. Snakes, spiders, cockroaches. <laughs> These are things we don't like. And so we don't want to be down on the ground. We, we're upright creatures. We tend to value being upright. So things which most correspond to our natural bodily posture, upright, up there, um, 
You know, even the fact that we say upright, that's a metaphor, right? Stand, stand up, you know, and sometimes we add these metaphorical prepositions that don't add a whole lot of meaning. Sometimes they add a little bit of grammar, um, but uh, a lot of grammar. There are reasons where these, the sources of these metaphors and their, and their basis in a system of symbols or, or signs, a system of semiotics, that's where the theory resides. That's what we really have to get at if we if we want to understand these things. Symbols grow over time. Uh, Peirce talked about that. And how do they grow? They become richer and richer. If you just take science, um, what we know about water today is a lot more than what we knew about water a long time ago. But you know, a million years ago, there was probably a word for water. I think Homo erectus probably had a word for water, but they lacked any chemical knowledge, I suppose, of what water was. So is that the same word? Yes, it is the same word. It's the same symbol, but it's gotten richer over time. We've filled in a lot of the gaps. And metaphors uh, we use um, when we don't quite understand things. And, and if you want to see great uses of metaphor, read any religious text. They're full of it because... Um, uh, metaphors point to things that we can't perceive directly, right? Um, and since you can never perceive God, he can only be talked about in metaphors because, you know, it's a bunch of BS. And so metaphors help you uh, get, it actually sounds like you're talking about something. Um, Wittgenstein, um, and, and you are in a sense, I mean, for Peirce, God is is real whether there is an entity that exists outside of language called God or not. You know, we refer to unicorns, and that's perfectly valid inference. You know, a lot of the philosophical problems of how can you refer to something that doesn't exist, Peirce deals with all of these problems very easily. And it's funny because as we've ignored Peirce, philosophers have spent a lot of time trying to talk about things that Peirce had, had pretty much solved, in fact, completely solved over 100 years ago. Um, so, so we, we use diagrams all the time to represent uh, their icons of things. We use them for math. Peirce developed an entire um, uh, set of diagrams to express very complex logical and mathematical functions. And he said, we can think of mathematics as, a, as an empirical science if we think about it as manipulating diagrams. So if the diagram doesn't come out right, the mathematical prediction is wrong. So the, the diagrams, the metaphors, are the, or the icons, these are the empirical things we're dealing with. Fascinating views of uh, mathematics as, a, as, a, as opposed to dealing with things that, that are never found, math just deals with icons. Yeah, I mean, it's true, right? Because math essentially is an, is an abstract idea in itself, the idea of numbers and... Um, I don't know. I mean, is, is one is, for example, is one really a thing or is it just something that we invented? The relationship one plus two can be shown diagrammatically. One can be shown as a diagram. Two can be shown as a diagram. Well, the Pitaha don't use these things. Um, but there are cultures that have uh, division, but don't have it outside of diagrams. So there's an Amazonian culture, and I'm trying to remember the name, I'm forgetting, that was first told to me by Brazilian scholar Arion Rodriguez, who talked about, they don't, he didn't think they had numbers. And um, this was even before I was claiming that Pitaha didn't have numbers. But he said, they divide things exactly. And how do they do that? They sit around in a circle, and each one makes a little trough in front of him, and then they go around and just flop things out into those troughs until they run out. 
So that's sort of like division by diagram without numbers. Um, you can actually do the operations without the words up to a up to a point. It just depends on how much you develop the diagrams. And then, so diagrams are in a sense icons of other things. Metaphors are icons, but they're um, they're more nebulous in some ways. Well, they're more free. They're, we we have greater freedom um, because you take any diagram, it cannot be a diagram of anything else. It has to be a diagram of things that share certain very obvious properties. Whereas a metaphor, you know, I can say, you know, he's like a duckbill. What do I mean by that? You know, um, you can think of all kinds of meanings. He's like, you know, he's like a feather. He's like an iPhone. He's like, you can, you can do this with anything. And, and our culture tells us to explore and then we come up with meanings and we agree oh yeah he's like an iphone in this way you know um he never you know he never stops bothering me well a few um a, a few months ago i spoke to this guy called peter Gardenfors, um and he he's working with these things he calls a conceptual spaces and it, so in his theory these spaces exist below metaphors so, for example, you would have a space which is where the sound of music exists and then different cultures map the metaphor onto that space. So, for example, in English, we have high and low, um, you know, sounds we say a note is high or a note is low. But in some Eastern European languages, they would say like a note is thick or thin. So it's almost and, and this sort of brings me back to my question. So I. Because I, I saw this comic this comic strip, and the, at the bottom of the comic it says, etymology was a lot easier back in the prehistoric period. And there's these two cavemen talking, and the, the, one of the cavemen has a rock, and he says, this is called a rock because last week Zog said it was a rock, <laughs> right? right? And and so, like, obviously the, the, the words that we have and the concepts we have um, they sort of came from somewhere and, you know, is that kind of, is it, is it from, from Peirce's kind of ideas of signs and, and indexes and, 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 you know, and symbols, or is it more like, is it sound symbolism? Is it metaphor? You know, what's the most likely source for language? All of these things, these conceptual spaces that Garden Force talks about are simply icons in Peirce's system. So Peirce's system of semiotics is a logical system, and it's built on logical constraints that he called speculative grammar. However, that's just the skeleton, and all languages have to plug into that skeleton, not because it's hardwired. This has nothing to do with Peirce's ideas, but because this is the only logical way these things can relate. But where do we get the values that up is good and down is bad, or thick is this and thin is that? We get these things from um, our culture. Our culture fills in the gaps. It tells us what the meanings are and how to think about things. Um, and, and this is hard for people to deal with. So the most philosophers working today, most linguists working today, the vast majority have no concept of either semiotics or culture. They know these things are out there, but they don't see the relevance to what they're doing. So you find people writing about metaphor at length, which lack any theory of how metaphor emerges from a theory of signs. And they, they talk about uh, uh, meanings, but they don't realize that meanings grow out 
of culture. The, one of the first major uh, books on meaning in English was um, Ogden and Richard's The Meaning of Meaning. Um, and this was, interestingly enough, um, the first introduction to Peirce's ideas in the UK. Uh, because Peirce was corresponding with a woman in the UK, Lady Victoria Welby, or Victoria Lady Welby, and she was talking to everybody, like Bertrand Russell, and she was well-connected, wealthy person. She lived in Frogmore, uh, where is, you know, where the, so she was, a, her aunt was Queen Victoria. So she, but she was well-connected and really, really smart, um, and, and she, um, she wrote books and she developed her whole theory called Significance, which was about meaning. And she told Russell about this brilliant work of person. She told Ogden and Richards about it. So this woman was linking all these theories of meaning, even though most of these people weren't reading Peirce directly. She was corresponding with him and she was sharing her letters from him with these people. And um, um, this, this, in but people who work outside this theory, who come along and think that inventing tree structure is some innovation or conceptual spaces or cognitive maps, these just are all um, uh, less well worked out versions of semiotics. Um, and and um, in many cases, they're inventing the wheel and they don't, they, they're reinventing the wheel and they don't, uh, they don't realize it because Peirce's work has sat in obscurity for so long because when he died without any connections, it was just a mass of papers in his house and Harvard sent down a wagon uh, with a couple of guys, a, a philosophy professor at Harvard, Josiah Royce, who had been Peirce's student, and they threw all his papers in the back of this wagon and they gave his wife a little bit of money and they took him up to Harvard and they dumped him in a big room, literally and people were stealing parts of them and looking at other parts and they lost a bunch. And uh, eventually somebody said, you know, these could be valuable. And so they started going through them because Royce died right after they got them. And so he wasn't able to, uh, or not long afterwards. And so um, now they're realized as one of the great repositories of wisdom in the, in the world. And they're all at the Houghton library at Harvard and they've been, through the through years and years of work, they've been somewhat organized, and um, and so people like me can go in there and sit at a desk and read all these papers and come up with their own order and their own theories of these things. But much of scholarship until recently, you know, I mean, um, Peirce was the inventor of analytic philosophy. Metaphor falls into this. Peirce's a uh, PhD student was Josiah Royce. Royce's student was C.I. Lewis. Lewis's student was Quine, Willard Van Orman Quine. His student was Donald Davidson. Um, so it's a lot of people don't realize how profound the Persian influence is throughout Western philosophy. Wittgenstein rewrote the Tractatus because Frank Ramsey apparently told him that it was wrong, and he showed him Peirce's reasoning why it was wrong. So Wittgenstein wrote another book called Philosophical Investigations, a whole new theory of philosophy, which in fact is compatible with Peirce. Unbelievable. Uh, but people miss these roots. They, they don't get the, his, 
the history of these things. So metaphor is something that is crucial to our understanding, to our communication. Lakoff and Johnson were some of the first people to really get on and show us the importance of all this stuff. There are many laboratories and embodied cognition that take metaphor very seriously and, um, um, and look for uh, the lessons we can learn about the way we think through the metaphors we use. But even those groups, which are so serious and so good, they're doing such great stuff, don't very often overlook the fact that what we're talking about is something precognitive, culture. Um, I shouldn't say precognitive because the relationship between culture and cognition is symbiotic. Each one builds the other. So one reason we wouldn't say that dogs have culture is because they lack the cognitive abilities. But as soon as they start to get a threshold of cognitive abilities enough to get culture, then that helps create more cognitive abilities. And, and language eventually uh, comes along as a good idea. So, so why, why, why do you think that um, Peirce's you know, theories are not more integrated into, into modern linguistics? Well, because at the time that modern linguistics, so, so some modern linguists, some linguists did recognize it. So the very, very important path-breaking linguist Roman Jakobson, uh, who, a very interesting history, born in the Soviet Union, left at the time of the Bolshevik Revolution, went to Czechoslovakia, left at the time of the Nazi assumption of, you know, Hitler's rise to power, came to the U.S., got a job at Columbia, had a student called Morris Halley and another person who hired a student called Noam Chomsky, and those two guys were deeply influenced by him. He wrote a very early article on the importance of Peirce and his brilliance for modern linguistics, which Chomsky has called Peirce his favorite philosopher. Um, he does use some of Peirce's ideas, but uh, not, not very uh, well. Uh, <laughs> so, so, and, but that's understandable because his papers were so disorganized. It took a lot of work. And, and uh, Chomsky was interested in developing his own theory. So that took off. And now for people to say, oh, whoa, wait a minute, a hundred years before Chomsky, there was a guy already writing about universal grammar that solves a lot of the problems that we have today that we can't solve. So you get a verb like give, I give John the book, okay? Um, that's got three arguments. As far as we can tell, there is no verb in any language that has more than three arguments. Peirce predicts that, and he works it out. And he says, this is why. Now, somebody told me the other day, I bet you $5 it's going to rain. And they say, so that has four arguments. But it's going to rain is not an argument of the verb, I bet. It's just filling in extra information. It's the content of the bet. So it's grammatical to say, I bet you $5. But it's not grammatical to say, I gave Bill. Or I gave $2. Um, so you, you've got to have an indirect object and a direct object. Peirce figured all this out long before, and modern linguistics hasn't even gotten a good explanation of that yet. Well, I mean, I think, uh, I don't know, I don't know how uh, Peirce's theory takes into account other kind of modern, well, I mean, like, for example, like usage-based um, grammar. Um, I, I've become, I have to say, I've become a massive fan of, of construction grammar. So am I. I'm a huge fan of construction grammar, but the, so there, there's, there's, Two things to say about it relative to purse that come to me right at the top of my head. First, constructions are signs, they're symbols. So purse would have predicted all, pretty much all their properties, and he does. So a construction is a sign. Uh, second, they're signs that come out of culture. 
Peirce's great weakness is that he had no theory of culture. He talked about the growth of symbols and collateral information, which are clearly intended to refer to culture. But, you know, he was writing before there was much culture. His student, John Dewey, became great friends with the founder of American anthropology, Franz Boas. Their offices were right down the hall from each other at Columbia. So through Dewey, Boas started to get some of Peirce's ideas. Unfortunately, the person whose ideas, William James was also influenced by person. He wrote a lot more. He published a lot more. His ideas were better known. So most people have come to Peirce through the very imperfect understanding of Peirce that William James had. It, probably Peirce's best friend. Um, but um, so pragmatism is from Peirce, not from James, although James is often given the credit. This influ and, and semiotics influence and pragmatism influence Boaz very heavily. They influence my teacher, Kenneth Pike, who studied with uh, Sapir, who was a student of Boaz. Um, and, and so there, there are plenty of reasons why Peirce's ideas have been ignored, mainly having to do with the, the way his papers were treated by Harvard and the fact that he was dead. Um, but, and I'm not saying that Peirce solved everything, but, but at some point, everything links back to signs. And that Peirce has worked out and nobody's improved on it um, in, in, in that period of time because he looked at it as a mathematical, logical thing. So he's worked out, it's like, Nobody has improved on arithmetic. You could maybe say that again. Girdle has shown certain properties of arithmetic, but nobody's come up with a better way of saying two plus two equals four. I mean, that's just the way it is. If you buy into the concept of arithmetic, which many many store, uh, you know, many uh, stockbrokers do not. But um, um, <laughs> so, so if you if you buy into the notion that there are these signs and persons worked out the logic, this is the way it has to be. So it's it's not like so, so it's it's not quite as empirical. It's based on empirical studies, but 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 then you plug things into that, and you can test it. I mean, you can see does it work, so people could reject it because they don't think it works. But he certainly had a lot to say about metaphor and about diagrams and about analogy, and and all of these things um, long before other people were were even thinking about these ideas. One of the more kind of um, freaky things for me that that you've kind of talked about is embodied cognition this idea that that our brain and our body are living in symbiosis i mean i know that seems obvious but according to um you know descartes they would be living in symbiosis according to embodied cognitive people there's no difference you know there's no more difference between your brain and your body than there is between your nose and your body um you know to say oh my nose is you know, my, you know, the, the, the equivalent of saying your brain is living in symbiosis with your body is saying that your nose has a life of its own um, or your or your finger does or your, you know, your anus. I mean, these, <laughs> these are just organs of the body. There's just parts of the body. And, 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 you know, I, when you get sick, you don't think as well. Case closed. There is embodied cognition. Your brain is just tied into your body. It has a function. It is the thinking part of your body, but so so are your fingers. And, and you know, uh, there are a lot of cool experiments at the Fisher Lab in, in Potsdam, University of Potsdam, which is really fascinating, where they have people uh, do math problems where their hands are all wired up uh, to measure what's going on with their hands. You can't, people don't think as well if they can't use their fingers in math. 
they can't uh, play the you know I try to show my grandson how to play certain songs and I forget how to tell him to play them so I have to play it a little bit my body has to get involved until my body gets involved my memory is screwed well I mean even I've I've read some 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 preliminary research that suggests that maybe Parkinson's disease starts in the gut that it's some sort of um bacteria maybe um you know yeah you know you eat too much uh, too many cold cuts growing up and you may have alzheimer's when you get older i mean it, the the brain is just an organ of the body it's damaged by the same sorts of things our thinking is dependent on our body like our heartbeat is dependent on our body and so in body cognition uh, a lot of it is deeply influenced by the work of lakoff and johnson in particular you know uh, this was um even though i think it lacks a a good theory of metaphor, it lacks, it does have a huge amount of applications of metaphor, and it is, um, it has been a hugely important book in, in, in our science about the mind and about culture. Yeah, because, I mean, for example, one, one part of embodied cognition is something called the action sentence compatibility effect, and there's, uh, there's an experiment here where um, they, they read sentences to the volunteers, like, for example, you handed Courtney the notebook and then they have two buttons. One button is closer to them. One button's further away. And if they press the button that's, that's further away from them, when they say a sentence, which is when they have to give something, uh, you know, away from their body, if those things match, if the action and the sentence match, then they do it a lot faster than if they're doing the opposite action. So this is uh, Warfianism basically. That, that the form of our language affects the form of our thought. Um, and so part of that is metaphorical, but um, you can find the same thing when people navigate. They grow up in a society like the Pitaha, where all navigation terms are absolute. You, they can actually navigate in a new environment more, effective, more effectively than English speakers who grow up with relative terms, like in front of me, to your side, right, and left. Um, and so some of this is metaphorical, but it's also the way we use our bodies. And, and um, this is all compatible to, uh, to Peirce, Peirce's work. Um, so, so when he talks about these things, he is illustrating metaphor, but it's only as part of a much larger phenomenon of culture-based reasoning. Well, well, that's actually the, the final thing that, that I want to sort of talk to you about, which is uh, just, just some examples of how this Warfian effect, um, you know, works with metaphor. So there's some great work, which is, um, uh, I'm not sure of the pronunciation of his name, but it's, I think it's Thibodeau and Boroditsky. And they did, they did quite a few different experiments together um, where they used different metaphors to talk about different things. And then they asked people what their reactions would be. So for example, they described crime using the metaphor of a virus. And then they described crime using the metaphor of a beast. And depending on which metaphor they used, people chose whether to use social reform as the, as the cure for this virus, or whether to use things like prison and law enforcement if it's a beast. So it seems that there's this, you know, there's this deep and subconscious connection between whatever the metaphor is underneath the language and and maybe even how we how we view the world 
No, that's very true. But what lies beneath the metaphor? Where do the metaphors come from? This is the this is the question that's not asked that much. And the metaphors arise from our culture because we value beasts in one way. We value other things in another way. We could talk about things as beasts. We can talk about them as not beasts. If we have negative feelings towards certain beasts, we will react in one way. If we have positive feelings, we'll react in another way. So again, we get back to the idea that anything can be a metaphor of anything else. It just depends on our culture and what we choose to to focus on is the connections. And if the connections are positive, they're gonna be different reactions than if we've chosen negative connections. So it's this huge communicative and interpretive flexibility that we have that underlies all of this. There's nothing in the metaphor itself that, that explains this. Metaphor is again, just a subtype of icon. And so to understand metaphors, we have to understand icons. And to understand icons, we have to understand the theory of signs. And to understand that, we have to understand semiotics. But to understand semiotics, which even Peirce missed, we have to understand culture. What is it that underwrites all of this? It is our society, our community, that decides. And we focus on the mind more because we're Cartesian dualists. And people who want to talk about cognition as opposed to culture or as opposed to the body are simply buying into Persian, or not Persian, but Cartesian dualism. The idea that the mind is simply different from the body. The mind is immaterial, the body is material, uh, or something very similar to that. But somehow it makes sense to talk. In, in a sense, we can have a theory of the liver and we can have a theory of the heart. There are cardiologists and there are whatever, you know, liberologists. Uh, we, we can have these, these theories, but nobody would seriously propose a theory of the heart that didn't look at its connections within the body. And, um, and yet many people are quite happy to talk about the brain without talking about its connections to the body. Um, and, and so we have these silly ideas, these metaphors, like the movie Matrix, where the brain and the vat which goes you know, back to Hillary Putnam and many other philosophers, there can't be a brain in the, bat, in the vat, right? The brain is in the vat already. It's called the body. And you can't take the brain out of the body. It doesn't work. So all these ideas of uploading the brain's memories as software, um, yeah, you can, up, you can upload some memories as software, I'm sure. You know, we do this all the time. I, I write my memories down in my diary every day. So you can put the, some of the memories outside your body. But my diary is not going to come up with a theory of, of how I should behave over the next year. Um, and neither is this computer because it doesn't have my body. It doesn't have my culture. It doesn't have my background. And, and these are things that um, only dualists would conceive of the world without these kinds of things. So Descartes' effect on our views of metaphor, on our views of the mind, on our views of language have been pernicious. And if I were teaching a class on, on um, you know, a, a new theory of language, I would say the first thing you have to do is completely ignore Descartes. Uh, just, you know, put that stuff in the trash. It's a historical curiosity. Um, and I'm obviously exaggerating here. I mean, he was a great mathematician and he did get us to focus on a lot of parts of, of thinking ability in humans, which everybody wants to study. Um, he just did it 
you know, um, Peirce worked very hard to undo the effects of Cartesianism, like intuition, introspection, um, the idea that um, we can start with doubt, which was Descartes' big idea. Peirce says we can never re we can never relieve ourselves of doubt. All we can do is start working and be ready to modify our beliefs as we go along, uh, uh, because we all, you know, belief is the removal of doubt. So. So we can't get rid of our beliefs because those are the things we don't doubt. And we can't doubt the things we don't doubt. That doesn't make any sense. So Descartes started on the wrong, you know, I, I think therefore I am. No, no, you eat food, therefore you are. I mean, it's um, his whole thing of dividing the body, you know. He could have said, I have to urinate, therefore I am. I mean, that makes as much sense. It, it doesn't, um, uh, so, so a lot of these ideas of looking at this one thing like metaphor, and, and thinking, so you can look at metaphor, you can study metaphor, but you have to see what's it connected to. Just like you study the heart, you have to know that it's connected to the lungs, it gets blood, it's connected to the liver, to the brain. You have to understand that metaphor is connected to culture metaphors. And so I'm using a metaphor of bodily organs to talk about um, a human invention, which metaphor is. So, so what would be, what would be the, the one thing that you want everybody to know about metaphor, not just in you know, in, in language, but in, in cognition. Metaphor is extremely important to understanding our species, how we think, how we relate to each other, how we talk about the world, how we conceive the world. Uh, and Lakoff and Johnson are owed an incredible debt by everybody for their pioneering breakthrough work on showing us examples. But ultimately, metaphor can only be understood as a small part of the theory of semiotics and human culture that underwrites all metaphors.